0: Welcome to this American Enterprise Institute event called Identity Required, How Pro-Social Identity Fosters Desistance from Crime. For those of you who are new to AEI, we are a nonpartisan think tank committed to making the intellectual, moral, and practical case for expanding freedom, increasing individual opportunity, and strengthening the free enterprise system in America and around the world. Our event today explores the question of whether we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what's required to deter and prevent criminal behavior. The American criminal justice system has tended to favor either a punishment or rehabilitation paradigm. Police, courts, and prisons exist to remove criminals from the streets, isolate them from the rest of society, and deter future criminal behavior. Prisons try to do this through the weight and memory of incarceration, or by intervening through various programmatic efforts to change criminal behavior from the outside. Today's conversation will focus on whether we have available to us a third somewhat different approach that leverages the internal psychological, emotional, and developmental processes common to all human beings to help people transition from criminal to pro-social identities. Our speaker, Dr. Sean Bushway, will lay out the case he developed in a recent AEI paper entitled Reentry, Desistance, and Identity Achievement. In this paper, he develops the argument that of prosocial identities as a spouse, as a mother or father, as a worker or as a student, how these new identities can supplant and replace criminal identity and stop criminal behavior. If this theory is correct, we would be able to reduce crime and recidivism neither by deterrence nor conditioning, but by encouraging and supporting a transformation of how people see themselves as members of society. Today's panel consists of policy researchers and practitioners in the criminal justice and reentry field who are passionate about effective solutions to these problems. As I mentioned, Dr. Bushway will be our lead speaker, He is a senior policy researcher at the Rand Corporation and a professor of public administration and policy at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and Policy at the State University of New York in Albany. In his career, he's published over 80 peer-reviewed papers on criminal justice topics and serves as a fellow of the American Society of Criminology and the Committee on Crime, Law, and Justice for the National Academy of Sciences. Rashawn Ray is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland and the executive director of the lab for applied social science research at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Ray has published over 50 books, articles, and book chapters and roughly 50 op-eds primarily on the topics of racial and social inequality, police-civilian relations, how inequality may be attenuated through racial uplift activism, and other topics related to social policy. Our third speaker is Brett Buckland, and he's the Director of Planning, Research, and Statistics for the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. He previously served in the Pennsylvania Governor's Office of Administration where he worked on projects related to probation and parole, corrections, state policy, and crime and delinquency. Dr. Buckland holds an MS in Public Policy and Management from Carnegie Mellon and a PhD from the University of Maryland. Finally, Julio Medina, is the founder of the Exodus Transitional Community, a reentry organization that has served over 10,000 participants in New York City and upstate New York. In 2004, Julio's work with returning citizens was highlighted in the Presidential State of the Union Address. And in 2016, he was awarded the White House Champions of Change Award. Julio holds a BA from SUNY Albany, a Master of Divinity from New York Theological Seminary, and he's currently pursuing a Ph.D. in ministry. Our program today will go as follows. Dr. Bushway will be giving us a presentation that covers the content of his paper, and then we'll hear responses from Dr. Ray, Dr. Buckland, and Julio, in how they think about his work in relationship to their own, where they agree, where they might disagree, then uh, we'll have a panel discussion um, we'll, I will try to pull together some of the threads of the conversation and then we'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions as well, which you can do. Uh, you can see in the banner there at the bottom of the screen. You can submit questions to Hunter Dixon at AEI.org or on Twitter uh, at hashtag AEI assistance. So with no further ado, we're going to get started and I'm going to turn the uh, presentation over to Sean Bushway.
1: Hi. So uh, thanks for the introduction, Brent. And uh, I'm very excited to be here. Um, This work on identity started with um, uh, um, my good friend and mentor Ray Patternoster at the University of Maryland and an important paper that was published in 2009. Unfortunately, Ray passed away in two thousand seventeen, and and this is uh, one of the first times I've really reengaged with the topic since his death. And I really appreciate the opportunity to continue uh, working in his legacy and and developing these ideas that have turned out to be quite powerful uh, in in this in this area of desistance. So, the concept of reentry uh, is about twenty one years old now. I love this picture not only because it's a Rank ordering of height from left to right, from Lori, from Lori Robinson to Amy Solomon to Jeremy Travis to Jan Areno to um, Eric Horton. Holder, sorry, I blanked out his last name. I practiced ahead of time. <laughs> Anyways, and these are, you know, reentry wasn't even a word really that used used in re- referring to people exiting prison until January. You know, sort of focused Jeremy's attention on this issue, and then Jeremy sort of wrote the important piece that said, "Hey, look, they all come back," and all of these people have been instrumental in in creating a, a policy discussion around this, you know, leading to the Second Chance Act and other things that such that reentry is now sort of a coin of the realm, and it's hard to overstate. Um, the impact that reentry had uh, on the general conversation about incarceration in the United States. I think it's not uh, not at all over, uh, you know, an overstatement to say that reentry as a concept is responsible for the sort of now consensus that we incarcerate too many people. However, um, I think it's also fair to say that there's a, a growing consensus that reentry itself, instead of just the things that it instigated, um, has hit a bit of a lull. So next slide so it's it's in some sense failure to launch it's no long even though it's now 21 it it hasn't fully matured as a concept that we really understand how to make this work so uh, and so as a result there's been a number of papers books recently by uh, by a very sort a, of a, a groups that sort of tried to rethink how we're thinking about this. So, AEI had a book in, in, in 2020 that Brent, out, Brent put together. NIJ recently released a volume of documents on desistance that's focused specifically on policy applications. And the National Academy of Sciences is, is also uh, working on a volume right now, specifically trying to focus attention on issues of recidivism, how it's measured, and, and how might we be uh, more focused on success. And so there's lots of opinions about what to do, given that there is a sense in which it we really haven't solved the problem of reentry and so everyone else has an opinion, and so do I so next slide, so the conversation today is about what I've written in this chapter about my ideas about how reentry can be reinvigorated and 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 how we might be able to make progress moving forward and that and I'm going to talk about three separate things: the first is. I think it's important that we measure success/slash failure correctly. In other words, I don't think the conversation that currently stands vis-a-vis, you know, the revolving door of prison is actually accurate, and I think that's an important thing to correct. The second thing is, I don't think fundamentally the term reentry is helpful because it's—I think it's fundamentally about the entry uh, of people into society rather than the reentry. I don't think prison has sort of disconnected people i think a lot of people aren't connected in the first place and then finally i think what's missing in policy is that we're not aligned uh, with the, the current theories of desistance that have sort of received the most attention or the most support and so we and i want to talk about what it would take to align reentry policies with the identity theory of desistance which is now as has reached consensus as being a, an important way of thinking about uh desistance next slide so I think we're all anybody that's familiar with this area is is used to these kind of reports from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. There's a headline you know, about recidivism, and it says things like, you know, um 82 percent were going to people that were released in a given year. In this case, 2008 were rearrested within 10 years and. um in this case, sixty-one percent of of, prison, of people return to prison for one reason or another within ten years. So this creates an image of of failure that basically everyone's going to fail, and so they're highly risky. And we need to, you know, it 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 it, it we're failing. And I, but I think that's actually a misperception. Next slide. So I have written down here two questions um, th- that ask the same sort of thing about recidivism, in this case, failure. So, the first question is, what is the proportion of people released from prison in 2000 who return to prison in 12 years? Okay, that's the first question. And then the second question is, what is the proportion of all people ever released from prison who currently live in society who return in 12 years? Ask yourself when you think about this, which question do you think you actually want the answer to? And I think the answer that you, the question you want to ask, is the second one. And unfortunately, the first question is the one that the statistics answer. Um, in other words, what we do is we follow one group of people um, who've been released, and we don't think about. Everybody. Yet we talk about when people use the top number. So the first number is 53%. The second number is 33%. In other words, Rhodes and and his colleagues documented this very carefully. You know, look at those differences between those two numbers. 33% of the people who have ever been released from prison come back. 53% 53% of the people who, who leave in any given year come back. Now, it's, I'm not going to talk about the statistics behind this, but notice how big the difference is. Um, with the majority are coming back. Wow, that sounds like everyone's failing, right? It sounds like Brett's not doing his job. And over there in the, in the, at Pennsylvania's the Department of Correction. However, when you realize that it's actually 33%, now that's still a, a, quite a bit of failure, but that means two-thirds of the people who exit prison never come back. And that's actually the number that answers the question we want to know, which is, to what degree do people who go to prison come back? And so I think this is really important to reset the conversation and focus on the fact that actually quite a few people succeed when they leave prison. So many people do desist. If we can acknowledge that, and instead of instead of having the false conversation about everybody failing and nobody desisting, we can then start to move to a more constructive conversation. And I think there are two elements to that conversation. The first is, can we enhance the process for those currently desisting? Because there are people who are desisting. So the question is, can we support that process? Can we improve that process? And then of course, there are some people that are not. And can we get more people on this pathway to the Okay, so those are the two things that sort of motivate me going forward and drive the discussion in the paper. Next slide. So. It's important to realize that in criminology, there are so two basic models or theories of desistance that, that sort of compete with one another. Um, the fir- one is indirect social control and the other one is identity achievement. Indirect social control came first. It was first pr- promoted as a theory in 1993. Um, and has sort of been around for the longest. Identity achievement has only recently in the last 10 or 15 years reach more maturity. Um, although uh, uh, in the most recent reviews, uh, more important people think that this is a, this is the best representation of what's going on. Um, but indirect social control says, look, uh, the way people don't commit crimes is, is they get uh, social bonds that directly control their behavior. So their, their relationship with their wife or their partner, their job, It creates costs to continuing to commit crime. And over time, those costs become strong enough that you decide to avoid crime. So in that model, it's all about control. So direct control and indirect control are substitutes. Direct social control is more coercive and more costly, but they're both doing the same thing. They're instituting costs associated with with actions. And so the the current model of reentry and parole and probation is very consistent with this approach. We try to get people uh, involved in jobs and other relationships um, so they they have indirect social control, but in lieu of that, they have direct social control. The the alternative model, which again, I think has received a lot more attention and support uh, recently in particular, is that people need to achieve pro-social identities as adults. Um, And so what this is about fundamentally is reaching a point where you're not happy with where you are and moving to an adult uh, pro-social identity. Um, And that this identity achievement is key to the You desist when you've achieved an adult identity that you you yourself want. (laughs) Um, And that's not consistent with the current model of of re-entry. And so I wanna talk about that inconsistency and think a little bit more about what identity achievement is and how that then can be translated into discussions about how to do re-entry. So ask yourself a simple question. Do people in prison have a full identity the way we think about identity for our children or for just generally when you talk about people achieving an adult identity? And, and, And when you look at the statistics, I think the answer is no. Most people exiting prison have not graduated from high school, held a full-time job, had a steady romantic partner, or had children. These aren't the only things that mark adult achievement or adult identity roles, but these are some of them. And, and you want to contrast that with what, if you go and interview people qualitatively and ask what they want when they're in prison, the vast majority of people Want these adult roles? They want things like they want a steady partner. They they want to be a provider. They want to be a parent. Um, they, that's what they themselves want. Um, and this is repeated over and over again. There, there are occasionally people that basically say, "Look, I'm going to go out and commit crime again." But the vast majority don't aspire to that. They would like a different path. So we have a situation where people don't haven't achieved a, a, an identity that they're that they're happy with, but that they want. Next slide. So, if you think about it that way, it's not fundamentally about reintegration because the people that are there and reentering haven't been integrated in the first place. So, it's about integration. So, in other words, it's about moving from a place where you don't have a place in society to a to a framework where you do. So, that kind of discussion about moving from not having a, a place in adult society to one where you do, that's, that's the discussion of human development by psychologists, which is a very you know, well studied field and well understood area. It's well understood in terms of the processes. It's not necessarily well understood about how to do it all the time. And so if we start talking about human development, it becomes clear that it's not human redevelopment, right? It's, it's just the process by which you become an adult and that you have aden- ad- identity roles that you yourselves want. So this process of development, next slide is the same challenge that everyone has um i have three kids in college they have no idea who they are right now i hope they figure it out um and and but i don't see that the challenge that they're facing is that different than the challenge that that we're talking about when we're talking about people who are re-entering from prison i've been major seven times sorry dad um you know I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't really get on a, a forceful path until I was 28. Okay. So, I mean, I think this is a, this kind of churning and, and making choices and trying to figure out what you want to do, that's a process everyone has. And it's not just set aside for people in prison. So, I think sometimes we think about the reentry process as if it's this completely distinctive process that only happens to people who went to prison. And I just don't think that's true. It's a challenge of human development that we all engage in. So, next slide. Of course, you know when when you talk about this, you know there are some issues about identity in prison that, that are different than, say, the identity challenges facing my children in college. For some, they have well-formed antisocial identities. I don't think that's the majority of folks in prison, um, but but they do. There are some of that, and so there is some movement away from that. They have to decide they don't want that anymore and have to move to something else. And there's also a distinct possibility that people in prison um, can can then form this adult antisocial identity. So, you know, this is a common expression is graduate school for crime. So there's a concern that peers will sort of help people um, um, sort of learn how to be better criminals rather than the alternative. And so, I mean, there's and there's good research showing that that's at least a possibility. Again, remember, not everybody returns, but in this this process of, 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 of bad identity achievement can also occur. So in terms of the policy options here, we want to be thoughtful in prison and, and subsequently that we're not supporting anti-social identity achievement, but instead supporting pro-social identity achievement. So that's the big question. And, you know, um, it, you know, particularly for practitioners, like, yeah, that, that sounds pretty obvious. Now, how do you do that? And, and that's a little bit harder. And, and, and I have to be honest, I don't think I solved the problem in the paper. I don't really even come that close to it, but I think it's useful to start thinking about the key features of an environment that would, in fact, um, Uh, start to contribute to having a positive identity. Next slide. So the first thing I think is the first and foremost thing is is the idea of respect. Um, uh, Jamie Fader and her grad student um, at, Penn, at, at Temple have written a very, very nice chapter that I encourage you to, to read about the importance of respect in this environment. From my own personal experience, one of the most embarrassing moments of my professional career occurred um, when I was teaching a difficult statistics class at Maryland, um, where forty percent of the students failed, and it was uh, it, it was it was discouraging because they all needed to pass the class in order to move on, and about halfway through about i had been teaching it four or five times i got called into the to the dean's uh, the department chair's office and he pointed out that that i had uh in the student responses uh, more students had said i was disrespectful to them as people than than had said that about any other teacher in the entire department in other words i got more no respect uh hits than every other faculty combined which was a deeply embarrassing and, and tr- troubling uh Uh, comment that I apparently was taking these students that were in this challenging environment and I wasn't showing them respect and it was affecting their learning ability. So I I went off to the teaching center and said, how do I fix this? And they said, learn everyone's name. Well, there were 200 students in the class, so I learned everybody's name. So the next semester, I learned everybody's name and it was remarkable what happened. My teaching evaluations went up by uh, a full point on a five point scale but more more importantly i enjoyed the class more and students actually learned better they did better we had better performance and i think it's important that you know even though yes we know some people are going to fail like my failure rate wasn't that different than the failure rate for people in in um in prison you, it gets discouraging however if the goal is to move people to a different place you have to respect them as people ha- having the potential to do that and one of the neat things is I saw students who have failed my class once come back and become wildly successful, including going off to Duke and being a law, uh, becoming a law professor. So I think it's important that respect form the foundation for how we think about this. And it's not hard to, to realize that if you're not being respected as a person, you're probably not going to want to achieve the things that the person who's not respecting you is telling you to achieve. Um, the next thing I think is fundamental here is a sense of choice. We like to think about reentry. A lot of mandates—you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do that—but that's not how identity achievement works. Um, it's fundamentally about choice. Um, and in fact, the psychologists say that if you you have an identity that you haven't chose, you don't really have a fully formed identity. You just fell into it. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that we have to create an environment where people are allowed to make choices. Um, that means there may not be the choice you want to make all the time, and you are allowed to incentivize. Uh, choices that that seem better for folks however um in the end it, it is about choice um and agent an agency is an important component of this uh of this phenomenon so in that context it's also important to ro- notice that when you follow people's choices and you see what they did you can actually see who's on the path to a positive identity achievement. You don't need a risk tool that focuses on the crimes they did five years ago. You just need to see what they're doing now. Um, Because we know people who successfully complete programs and other things like that uh, do better than everyone else, uh, substantially, 20 to 40% better, even if the program itself is not particularly effective. In other words, we learn about the people who participate in these programs by allowing them the choice to participate and, and succeed. The third thing I think is that I think it's important to create an environment where learning is the key idea because learning itself, someone who's a learner has an identity, even if they're in prison or in a, in a situation where they don't have a job necessarily, but if you're a learner, that is an identity that becomes a a way of thinking about yourself different than I'm a criminal or, or, or other things. And learning is also important because fundamentally, if you think about the challenge of development, it's about learning. I learned I didn't want to be an actuary by being an actuary, um, and then think about well, what what did I like about being an actuary? What did I not like about being an actuary? Um, and you know, I I dated one person. I decided what did I learn about that? I like to date a different person. So you learn things, and that's how you make your choices. And th- the second thing about learning is that it's a it's a you know like I said fundamental to the process. So I think if you create a learning environment, you you create an environment where people actually have an identity to begin with, they're a learner, and they're doing the very thing that needs to happen for development. And then finally, I think it's important to stress the value of relationships. I've had the privilege over the course of the years I've been in uh, studying this topic to listen to the story of many people who have the lived experience of incarceration. And almost to a person, the story involves a relationship that they had with someone either inside or outside of the prison system, where that person believed in them and and, and loved them in a sense. Um, it's not always romantic love. It can be lots of other kinds of love, but really believed in them and gave them a positive relationship. And I, I think it's, it's hard to overstate the importance of that, uh, particularly in an environment where maybe it, many folks haven't had the benefit of those kinds of relationships. And since I think fundamentally, if you think about people that have a well-formed, positive pro-social identity, the ability to have relationships with others are, are a key element to that. So if you haven't had that experience, how are you going to have an identity role that is founded on having good relationships if you haven't had that? And so I, I think both from the perspective of the kinds of support and help that allows that to happen, as well as the things you're trying to model, um, I think the ability to have positive relationships with other people um, is is an important component of any reentry process moving forward. So those some other things I think we we don't need. Um and I think the first thing we need is no long-term. We don't need long-term supervision. Um, we It's hard to imagine a model in the current environment where we won't have some control. But right now in, in Pennsylvania and other places, it's not uncommon for parole or probation to last for many, many years. And it's fundamentally from a perspective of looking at the desistance patterns that occur, not helpful and in some cases counterproductive. If you think about it. Many times, we we give long-term supervision p- periods to people that are very high risk. Yet the highest risk people are going to fail the fastest. And if you observe the high-risk people that have survived for two years without reoffending or going back to prison, um, the reality is they're not high risk anymore. Because if they've been high risk, they'd have failed. So I don't think we need long-term periods of supervision. I think we need one or two years of supervision if we're going to have a model of some control. And then... And then end it because uh, then it's not helping anymore, and it's just punitive. Um, the 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 last thing is is that there's barriers to opportunities. You know, if you're if you're into control, you think, well, the person needs a job, so they, to, in order to um, uh, to have indirect social control. But you also say, well, gee, you know, we don't want to provide them with opportunities where they can commit crime. So you have to you you want to restrict their opportunities because there is this sense of control however in the context of providing saying look they're doing the same human achievement that that everyone else is look, then they need to be able to have access to the same roles that everyone else maybe not every single role and every single opportunity but you can't if you if you define the goal as adult achievement, of a, a, adult identity achievement, and then you take off from the table many of the simple uh, opportunities and roles that would allow them to achieve that identity, then you're you're, you're working against yourself. And I've written uh, in other places where I think these barriers actually are, are counterproductive on other dimensions as well. Next slide. So, I, you know, what I've tried to put forward in this document, and I'm, and again, I'm sure it's frustrating to practitioners because I haven't provided a lot of concrete detail. But at least I've tried to create a, a vision for a reentry, where where I recognize that the the key goal here is to help people achieve pro social identities that they themselves want. We're not imposing something else on folks. Most of the folks in prison want the same thing most everyone else does. Um. And so when you view it that way, desistance, not committing any more crimes, is a side effect of successful identity achievement. It's not the, it's not the thing you're trying to do. You try to achieve, um, identity achievement. And, and, and since these identities are inconsistent with committing crime, um, uh, people will move forward. I mean, if you think about it, you probably, the reason why you didn't commit a crime today is not because you were going to get caught. Um, it's because it's not consistent with how you think about yourself as a person. Um, so then you have to, if you think that's the, the idea, then you do need to con- create concrete environments that support pro-social identity development. In other words, the things that people experience when they're going through the process of reentry have to be consistent with the theory that says people are, are desisting because they've achieved a positive identities. Okay. So next slide. So quick summary of things that you should take away from this talk. Um, first thing is prison is not a revolving door. Um, uh, the, the statistics that people cite are, are are not appropriate for the discussion that we're having about reentry. They're appropriate for some things. If if you're a prison warden, I think that the numbers are are important to discuss. But th- that's not what we're talking about. We were talking about what's the failure rate for anyone who's ever been to prison. And those numbers are much lower than the number about of who's going to fail who's get, uh, for people that are getting released today. Um, and they're much lower, in fact. <laughs> um, the second is we need to recognize the systems as a developmental problem rather than a control problem. Um, and then finally, I think the focus has to be on identity achievement rather than control. You don't allow people to ad- achieve it. A, a functioning identity as an adult by 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 controlling them. There, you you have to allow them to be human, which is to make choices and move to something that. But remember, it's not it, in most in most cases the people want a pro social uh, identity rather than an antisocial one. So I want to thank you for your attention. I'm very much looking forward to um, the comments of, of of the of the discussions. Um, it's exciting to see Marilyn represented. I was a faculty member there until 2006. In fact, I knew Brett as a student, who was a fantastic student, and he's gone on and done wonderful, amazing things. He's, he's the ideal of what you want a PhD student to do. He's had a real impact. And I've, I've seen Julio in many different situations, and I, I'm very much looking forward to his comments as well. So thanks so much for your attention, and, and I'm looking forward to the
0: discussion. Terrific. Thank you, Sean. Um, that's a whole lot for us to consider and to help us consider it, Um, we want to draw in our other panel uh, members. And so we're going to give each one of them, uh, Rashawn, Brett, and uh, Julio uh, uh, a few minutes, five minutes uh, to give us their high level reactions. Uh, And then I'm going to try to thread some of that back together into a panel discussion. So go ahead, Rashawn.
2: All right, Brent, thank you, Uh, Sean. That was a, a great presentation. It was nice to to hear that. I, I definitely want to thank um, AEI for the invitation. Um, as people know, based on what Sean just presented, he's one of the leading experts on this topic and he nailed it with his paper. It's balanced and, and noteworthy. Um, I mean, as I was reflecting on it, I couldn't help even as a, a researcher that aims to be uh, balanced and think about the, the work that I do and not bring in the personal, I couldn't help but to think about my own friends who fall, into, uh, who fall into these different buckets that Sean was describing. Um, I, I obviously think about the dire statistics, uh, particularly for Black males, when we think about the criminal justice system and how we are thinking about what does it mean to uh, enter society, which I think is important. There were two huge uh, kind of quotes that stood out to me. I mean, there were several, but I'll, I'll mention two for the sake of time. Uh, one was where Sean said, quote, he wrote, I asserted talking about a a book review that he'd done some years ago, I asserted that prison entry, that prison reentry is a misnomer uh, because the problem facing those returning to civilian life from prison is fundamentally one of entry rather than reentry. When focusing on reentry, one thinks the problem is is people needing to reacquire the jobs and housing that prison took away. That was a valuable statement. Very, very powerful. Because the point is that most people who are going to prison do not have these things. Most people who are engaging in crime aren't just doing it for the sake of doing crime or or because they have some sort of biological or or genetic deficit, but because uh, certain types of opportunities and social networking connections have, have not been there. So how do we increase commitment to a new career identity? As a sociologist who specializes in social psychology, I always get excited when we talk about identity. And in responding to that question, increasing commitment, um, Sean lays out several things. One, in particular, where he said, "Quote: People whose past criminal careers identify them as high risk should not be subjected subjected to excessively long wait periods before they are given the chance to engage with society." Not only is that about being on probation, but my interpretation of that is also about when people are incarcerated. How can we ensure that we create programs? that help people to increase their adult roles, uh, particularly as it relates to education and jobs. I mean, the, the other part about relationships, I think sometimes maybe people could figure some of those things out even from prison, but when it comes to education and jobs, these are things that we could do a much better job, no pun intended, of helping people to be able to do. Um, I also wanna help frame some of the entry rather than re-entry and integration rather than reintegration uh, frameworks that Sean laid out. I grew up in Atlanta, and I'm originally from Tennessee, but in growing up in Atlanta, um, I was zoned for a high school that didn't have enough books for all the students, that the bathrooms did not work, uh, where teachers were so overwhelmed with the lack of resources, that it wasn't about kids deflecting or removing away from education. It was that education told them long ago that they were not worthy enough of even having a decent space. We have to think in Atlanta, this was in the 80s. Um, you could think about how hot it was in the summer. And the school that I was on for did not have air conditioning. We know research documents that if you're learning in a hot environment that your standardized test scores go down. There are a series of things that I'm aiming to highlight about structure and a lack of these resources that these individuals had opportunities, uh, that they had a lack of opportunities for, a lack of jobs were available. And Sean made a good point about having buffers later in life. I think about how my mother was able to put me in a busing program where she connected with my fourth grade teacher, and that's part of the reason why I'm here today. And I oftentimes think about if I if I wasn't, uh, if I didn't get in that program, if I didn't have certain opportunities, that I would have had that same reaction um, that other students and some of my friends actually had about education and work opportunities. Accordingly, respect is a fundamentally big deal. It goes two ways. It's not only about people respecting the system, but it's also about supposedly the system respecting them as human beings. And I think those are some of the things that that we can work on. At the same time, as a person who, who studies how, how structure matters, we cannot discount the importance of individual agency, as Sean noted. Individual agency is key. And at a certain point in time, while we might look at a 13 year old or 15 year old, maybe even a 21 year old. It's mentioning thinking about people in college. And of course, I'm super excited to have so many Terps represented on this panel. And thinking about how yesterday was the last day of classes at the University of Maryland for, for many of my students who are who are around 21 year olds. Uh, we can think about the role of individual agency in these buffers. And so what I like to think about are models of success, like Marcus Bullock, who owns and operates Flick Shop. Uh, an amazing example. And I'll mention two quick things as I close. First is that part of what happens in these communities that I'm describing all across America, not just in predominantly black or Latino neighborhoods, but also in predominantly white rural neighborhoods is what I call the brain drain. It's where some of the most talented, some of the most successful, uh, some of the most well-resourced are plucked away, never to really return because the things they need to actually return and be successful in those neighborhoods simply don't exist. The people who are there are left behind. On the other hand, we also can think about the importance of individual agency and how we might instill motivation for garnering these adult, uh, these adult roles. And I think that part of it is a mentoring model that we might think about, about how putting individuals in the lives of others who need to be positive, academic, that doesn't mean that, that they have PhDs. It simply means that they value education and understanding the importance of getting a trade. So they have to be positive. They have to be academic. They have to be visible and they have to be accessible. See, part of what happens with the brain drain is that it cuts off people from being visible and accessible in the communities where they're from. Outside of going to visit my grandmother, oftentimes I don't spend time in my hometown uh, where I grew up at. And that's unfortunate. Um, and that's the case for some of my other friends who were successful as well. So I'll stop there. But uh, really good paper, Sean. I look forward to to other people's insights.
0: Terrific. Thank you, Rashan. You uh, really great comments, and uh, I, I particularly appreciated the uh, notion of respect being two way, uh, and that systems matter. Um, it it. It isn't enough just to load all this responsibility onto the shoulders of individuals who are already under resourced. If you think about um, the the systems that surround them. Um, okay, so we're going to move on now to uh, Brett and hear what his reflections were.
3: Great, thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks to AEI for putting this panel together, this great panel, and uh, I want to especially thank Sean for this uh, fantastic paper. Um, I have to say it's it's always intimidating uh, critiquing Sean's work, and there's very little to really disagree with here. Um, and I also want to say Sean's moment of uh, vulnerability about 40% failing. I don't think I was in the 40% failing, but I always felt respected by Sean at University of Maryland. and. Darn it. He was always right. <laughs> he he was hard and he was um, he was uh, a strict uh, critic critique uh, of our work. But um, I found his work to be um, highly important. And um, he was he was always usually right. in um, the critiques he gave us as a professor. Uh, so um, it's a huge privilege to uh, be able to comment. And I have a number of comments across six different points that Sean made in his paper. Um, I'm going to keep it really brief, though, uh, just so that we can have enough time for a back-and-forth discussion. Um, I think uh, the first uh, thing that I thought was really important about Sean's paper was the connection between theory and policy. And I was recently on the NIJ uh, panel on assistance that Sean mentioned. And one of the, I think, frustrating things for us who are in the policymaking realm is that There's this whole academic uh, exercise that talks about desistance, and I can tell you that most of my colleagues at the Department of Corrections and most of the politicians in Pennsylvania have never even heard the word desistance, much less be able to define it. And so I think Sean does us a favor here by really bringing it down to a practical level and trying to connect what has really traditionally been a very academic exercise uh, in theory and tying that into some concrete policy um, scenarios, and and um, what it means practically for policymakers, uh, I think he's right that theory is important. Uh, I think conversely, most policymakers are working on an assumed theory, and what they're doing in practice, they just might not know or explicitly state what the propositions of that theory are. And so, it really takes two-way translation um translational criminology as has often been referred for um to be able to understand what policymakers are looking at because they are indeed in fact in the business of um, helping people transform their lives uh, but also understand the theory and um, the academic part of that so i appreciated that part of uh, sean's paper um, I was intrigued by his uh, discussion about pro-social identity transformation, and that that really seems to have the most empirical support as a model of desistance. Uh, I would tend to agree uh, in my reading of the literature that that seems to kind of be winning in terms of empirical support. But I would also push a little bit and then say I'm not ready to throw out indirect social controls quite yet. Uh, I think on my on-the-ground experience in Pennsylvania with some programs, uh, like the Hawaii Hope Probation Program, which is essentially a deterrence-based program that um, provides clear expectations for probationers, uh, holds them to those expectations, and responds in a quick, consistent, swift way for violations of those uh, um, the rules, uh, has shown in experimental some experimental research to be effective, and um, you know, indeed, I think that there is still some hope for uh, what Sean referred to as indirect social controls as mechanisms to what we call on the inside help people fake it till they make it. So sometimes they're not going through a, an identity transformation, but they're just kind of faking it in order to get by in the system. To the point where they eventually maybe internalize it because they faked it for so long that then it becomes real and it does become an identity transformation. Sometimes they may never even get to that identity transformation. They just have changed their behavior. And I think at the end of the day, from a public standpoint, that's really all we're asking for is that, you know, people change their behavior when it comes to crime, that they abide by the law, even if they haven't internalized that change. So um, I don't want to throw out indirect social controls, but I do agree that, um, you know, pro-social identity transformation um, seems to have a lot of uh, uh, empirical support and would be an important uh, mechanism. On this idea about desistance as a process versus a discrete change, I thought it was interesting, the analogy that Sean made in his paper to um, being cured from a disease like cancer. And um, as opposed to how a lot of people who are working in desistance literature think about this process of desistance. Uh And so I thought that was really interesting. I also very much agree with Sean that um long probation uh, and long supervision uh, tails are ineffective, especially when they're driven by risk assessment. Uh, What we've seen in our research in Pennsylvania is that because these risk assessment models, what happens is that we'll use a risk assessment tool, an actuarial tool, and we'll assess someone is their probability of reoffending and set supervision levels or supervision terms based on that. And there's a certain degree of error, sometimes a big degree of error, a large degree of error in those um, probabilistic models. And we've seen people on supervision for three, four or five years who haven't even had as much as a technical um, parole violation for a, a minor violation. And yet they're being maintained on higher levels of supervision because on this actuarial assessment, based on their past criminal history, they're coming out as high risk. And so it's not really based on their current behavior, their demonstrated behavior, which I think is what it should be based on is their actual demonstrated behavior, not a risk assessment. So I very much agree with um, Sean's point there. In terms of whether desistance is a process versus a discrete change, um, I think we do see desistance as a process in some of our research in Pennsylvania. We're working on currently on a recidivism report uh, that confirms a lot of Sean's uh, statistics about um, not everybody failing, that the recidivism rates aren't as high as we might think. If we look at just people released from prison in a year, as Sean mentioned, they are quite high after 15 years, about 70 to 80% recidivate. But if we look at things like um, deceleration, so slowing down the rate of offending, even if still offending, but slowing at a slower rate, or de-escalation, looking at um, – Reducing the severity of the types of crimes that are committed, we see that conversely about 90% meet some benchmark of desistance. So that's nine out of 10. That's most people are meeting some form of desistance, but those things like deceleration and de-escalation are processes um, that, you know, happen over time. Um, Signaling um, was another part of Sean's paper They didn't go that he didn't go much to it into uh, in his overview. Um, but I also think is a, a worthy concept. And Sean mentions in the paper that he's not bothered by the fact that programs may serve only as a signal to identify those who' have changed, even if ineffective. And I would also agree with that. I'd share that, um, share that view. Um, that I'm not bothered at all if we have programs that only serve one person purpose in the Department of Corrections to identify people as a signal. Uh, um, I think that's actually probably more realistic, too, because a lot of the program evaluation, which I also recently reviewed for this NIJ paper on assistance, is pretty abysmal on the effectiveness of a lot of these programs. And in fact, AEI hosted a panel I was reminded of about 15 years ago, um, by David Farabee on his book called Rethinking Rehabilitation, which pointed out a lot of this in terms of uh, the pretty abysmal literature um, on outcomes in um, pro- prison programming and criminal justice programming. So I think you know programming there's a lot of ineffective programs out there, and if it could only serve as a, as a signal to identify those who have or have uh, changed their identity, I think that's useful enough. And I also think policymakers like parole board members, would go along with this as well. Uh, I think it would be hard for them to admit, but uh, a lot of times they're prescribing programs just to kind of cover their butt um, politically. Um, but they're not so concerned if the program actually works, they want to be able to say, if someone fails, I prescribe that program. Um, and so I, I think if you could get them to be honest, they, would probably not be so concerned if the program just was a signal um, and didn't have any um, causal effect or on an outcome. And lastly, uh, I thought the ta- uh, the discussion about agency was really important uh, in Sean's paper. I agree that uh, it would be ideal to create a prison environment um, that enables people to, um, to seek a, uh, to be able to form a pro-social identity. I think that's really difficult in a prison environment because it is such an artificial environment. Uh, for instance, uh, I think part of learning, which is one of Sean's um, three things—learning, uh, respect, and relationships—learning can't happen if people can't fail. And in prison, we have an environment where people are often—it's so artificial. People are told when to get up, when to eat, when to go where. Um, there's and they're punished for failure, for misconducts, and so. There's little room for um, failure, which means that hampers a learning environment. I don't have the answer, but I think it is important, and it's just extremely challenging within a prison environment. We are doing some things in Pennsylvania that would meet his objectives of learning, respect, relationships. Uh, we're supporting um, college courses for our uh, population um, based on Pell funding now. Um, we're um, also um, we have um We have a a robust visitation program where family members and friends can come in and visit and support a lot of volunteers coming into our facility, which I think is important to Rashawn's point about mentoring, trying to really open the doors to prison and have the community come in as much as possible to uh, meet people while they're in prison. And, um, and then, and, and then, um, agency, I think one thing that we're looking at is just helping people to build their agency by being able to make their own choices while in prison. For instance, being able to choose who they sell with, uh, who their cellmate is, uh, security concerns aside. Uh, being able to choose what prison they go to uh, in Pennsylvania, they all come to one central prison first to get diagnosed and then they um, are farmed out to 23 prisons around the state. And maybe we can give them a choice on, you know, what prison to go to and building and allowing that choice helps to build that sense of agency, um, which, you know, can help in that um, progression towards a, um Building a pro-social uh, identity. So there's a lot more. I'm going to stop there. But uh, again, fantastic paper, Sean. Thanks for allowing me to comment on it, and looking forward to the Q and A.
0: Thanks, Brett. Um, again, terrific. Uh, and I want to I want us to come back to the signaling question, which I think is really important. Um, and so we'll we'll hold on that. But uh, n- next is Julio Medina, uh, and he I'm sure will have a uh, and some insights uh, based on his own life and on the, on his work um, to help us, uh, to tell us and try to enlighten us as to what this sounds like from the standpoint of system-impacted individuals. So
4: thank you. Thank you, uh, all, Thank you, Sean, for your, for your research, for your paper. Definitely spoke volumes. Um, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I uh, uh, love what I heard, but I, I think, you know, Kind of as we begin and we think about this, you know, I think it all starts with humanizing language, right? Uh, you know, we're not ex-prisoners, we're not ex-cons, we're not, you know, parolee, we're not, we're not any of that, right? We're, we're people, we're fathers, we're, we're mothers, we're aunts, we're uncles, we're we're, and that begins the humanizing process because for so long, uh, some people that are going through that system have become a number, right? We've been stripped of identity. We've been stripped, you know, you, you get a haircut, they take your clothes, they shave your balls, at least in New York State. And you go through this kind of reorientation process that you are now a prisoner. So I think it's important as we as we think about this conversation that we really think about humanizing language just, just as, a, as a as a starting point. And, and Sean, I think I just disagree with one thing when you said, you know, what people want in, in prison. Uh, priority is freedom. I know you said uh, you said a couple other things, but but the priority is freedom, um, and I say that as a justice impacted person. Uh, I served twelve years in prison, um, and during those twelve years, you know, as as, as I was reading uh, uh, the paper, so many things rang true. You know, um, um, and I want to just just jump around a little bit, but when you talked about some of the programming, you know, and and sometimes for the first time that allows someone right. Who begins to develop some agency to see themselves in a different light? So I'm out of New York City, uh, South Bronx, uh, poorest economic area in the country in the '80s, and 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 just not just an explanation, not an excuse for 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 crimes. Uh, and I was I was sentenced to to time in prison for drug distribution, and all that time, that's who I thought I was. I mean, I was doing other things, but, you know, when we talk, when we think about kind of this identity achievement at that point, I'm thinking, oh, shit, you know, this is this is the person that I've become. And I was in a class and and I was told to describe myself in this class. And I never forget this because I'm sitting there. I'm like, all right. You know, I look at communities and I'm, I'm bilingual. I try to be safe. I go in. I try to take over a block and another one. You know, I go to different states and and I, I kind of canvass the area. And the professor said, uh, wow, so Julio, you sound like a community organizer. So for the first time, I wasn't identified as a drug. Someone else identified me differently. And that was that moment when it was like, oh, wait a minute, what's that? First of all, I had to go look it up, right? I didn't know what a community organizer was. So, you know, I tried to figure out, okay, if that's me, that's what I want to become. And I think that just was a, a crucial point when we think about some of the programming that happens for, for, for some of us, again, who are in that space. And and, and I gotta tell you, in, in this course, I, I remember this was, uh, I was going to a parole board and, and I think, Brett, I think you said it, you know, fake it till you make it. So I'm, I'm going to this parole board and I'm like, you know what, this program is gonna look good. So let me make sure I got that as I go in. And as I went through this program and I heard that and, the, and my identity began to change, you know, I had a life sentence on the back. And, you know, at that moment, it was like, and you talked about that, 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 that distance that's, that kind of just happens. And it was that moment where I said, I am somebody else. I can do something different with my life, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, there were some gradual things that brought me to that space, but I, I just remember that in particular and how that was just one of those defining moments that allowed me to say, you know what? It's no longer about me making the parole board, Brett. It's no longer about me faking it till I make it. It's I think I found something here, and I want to hold on to it and I want to explore it. Um, so that was just just some of the stuff as you as as I was reading that popped out. Um, I'm I'm still trying to figure out, and again, it's, it's, it's I'm not a researcher, so forgive my some of my uh, you know ignorance when it comes to research, but I'm I'm trying to put together the college and the prison experience and kind of that release and kind of all of us trying to find the same things. You know, uh, prison, we, we've we been crippled from the beginning, right, um, from lack of resources. Many of us come from the poorest neighborhoods in the community. In New York City, at one point, we came from 85% of the prison population came from the seven poorest neighborhoods in New York City. So, you know, if if, if we have to talk about poverty, Uh, We have to be able to talk about, you know, in those seven communities, right, 85 percent of people are black and brown people. We have to talk about race as we think about, you know, kind of this 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 identity change and this that it felt as though and not an excuse, just an explanation. uh, From that point, the disadvantage was very clear. Uh, Rashawn, I think you said it when you when you talked about our school system versus other school systems. Um, so the deck seems stacked against us very early in life. And again, I, no excuse, you know, Sean, you came and, and did your thing. And, you know, my route, sadly, was prison. Um, but I just thought that that as I was reading that, I think one of the things when we think about, you know, uh, identity changes is that one time that that just jolted me into the reality that I fully agree with when I was called something other than, than what I was in prison for. Um, you know, but as, as we think about this, I just want to say, you know, it's it's these risk scores sometimes, are, 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 you know, and I'm agreeing with, you know, in New York, we have something called compass and this compass is, is you know, correctional offender management profiling for alternative sanctions. Yeah, say that right. Three times. Everything about that feels wrong. It's not culturally competent. It's not saying all it's looking at is a criminogenic profile, which you clearly express, which I love when you're expressing those those pieces in your paper, because it talks about how skewed uh, this is, and it's, it's based on this deficit model, right? It's based on kind of every deficit someone may have and saying, okay, here we are, and, and, and these are the programs we will wrap around you when you have no agency in this process. You have no commitment to this process of change. Because it's being it's being told this is what you have and you know, which goes back to the whole respect thing that that uh, you talked about that that just lacks in the prison system, right? And 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 you know, in prison is which is which is crazy, you know, it's a, we have the most respect for each other you can possibly imagine. You know, you reach over someone's plate, you gotta say, excuse me, brother, <laughs> can I reach for this? Or excuse me, can I can I, you know, there's a lot of respect. And I think that's what breeds some of the success that we see uh, when when some of us are released and some of us are doing different things with our lives. You know, uh, uh, I love kind of how you reverse the stats around uh, recidivism. I mean, that's important to look at because, you know, we always talk about, you know, who's going back, who's going back, who's going back. Um, It's not talking about the successes. It doesn't talk about the hundreds that I know in New York who are who are doing this work. I manage an organization called Exodus. Um, We service about 4,000 people a year, walk through our doors. Um, I have a trauma center. I have a wellness center. Um, I have 248 staff. And of those 248 staff, 90% have been impacted by the justice system. Who better than us to create a roadmap for others? So I think it's important that, and there's others. There's a bunch of others. I don't want to just, you know. Because uh, I run that shop, but it's, it's just a, so many bunch of other organizations that that we can highlight that are really doing the work. But sadly, you know, we have to sensationalize recidivism. That's usually the norm in our country. Um, and that becomes a sad reality because now we scare folk into, yes, harshest prison sentences. You know, meanwhile, people are doing really, really well. And actually, recidivism rates are lower. Um I I wanna end with these two things. I know we don't have a lot of time, uh, Brent, but again, I just wanna say thank you. But you know, when we talk about education, I think, you know, and we know, you know, 70% of the folk going in, you know, in the population don't have a GED, don't have a high school diploma, Um, you know, same percentages that are people of color. Um, You know, we as a country have to look at this, right? I mean, if, if we were any other place, you know, that's a system that will be torn down and rebuilt. Right. When you're talking about, you know, failures at that 35, 40 percent. That's 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 a system that should not exist if failures, especially failures of that magnitude. Um, so something is happening, corrections that we should look at. You know, there's a model in 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 Switzerland, right? That Switzerland model. And I I just remember this part of it that always stuck out for me. You know, the the, the correction officer says somebody went back the correction officer stops and said, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? And that is something that that's so compelling. When when the onus of the responsibility goes on that person, that he feels, oh, my God, he's back. That means something I did wrong, that he came back here. And I think that that kind of begins to change the tables of some of the work that that you know um, we're doing, and we're identifying, and again, Sean, grateful, so grateful for for what you're doing, bringing this to the forefront. Uh, just just means so much, and allows so many others to do this work in a very different way. So, thank you for the opportunity to share with you this this afternoon.
0: Um, okay, so we've got a couple questions coming in. I've got some questions, but I I uh, first want to give Sean uh, a chance. If there's anything in what you heard in the comments that you wanted to respond to. uh, We should probably do that first and then I've got uh, some questions that I'd like to follow up on. First, I want to apologize to, to Brent uh,
1: for being a little longer than I had planned. I, I don't know what happened. I, I practiced it. <laughs> but um, hopefully we still can do what you need to do. Um, second thing, I need to apologize to my children who are apparently listening. Um, I, I do think you can have positive identities. I'm, I'm fully faithful. I have a lot of confidence in you. Um, so the uh, the um, so that's the. But it, in terms of the comments, I mean, I think particularly with respect to like you know, when you talk to people who are exiting prison, I mean, yes, they they want to be free. The question is, what do they want to be when they're free? And it's, it, it's, it's overwhelming that they don't want to go out and commit more crime. <laughs> that's the part I'm trying to stress is that it's, it's yes, they want to be free, but then it, it isn't as if you, you know, these people are saying the first thing I want to do when I go out is commit a crime. That's not, that's not the goal. And I think that's important. And I think, you know, the, the the i think that the comment that brett made about that there being a role for control yes i think that's true like why did you drive 70 miles an hour in the 65 mile an hour zone and not 80 on the way to work today well Because you didn't want to get caught. So there's plenty of rate. There's plenty of reasons why we do, you know, there are places in our lives where we do respond to incentives and, and that's, that's okay. I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm saying that fundamentally in terms of how you spend your time and and how you live, there's going to be a, there's a place for understanding that, that, that in the end, this isn't just about, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't do it because I, the cost is too high. I do I don't do it because it's not consistent with who I am as a person. Um and that's I think that's a distinction that's important. So it's not to say that people aren't rational and they don't respond to incentives. They do. And we should remember that. Um I also think that in the context of of some of the comments that if you, if you make it about integration, then you then do, rather than reintegration or reentry, then you'd have to acknowledge the very things that Julio mentioned, i.e. that there are a lot of people, particularly in certain communities, that haven't had the opportunities that other people have. Um, and so that's, I think, really important. Like, it immediately makes it obvious that there's a lot of people who haven't had the same opportunities and therefore haven't achieve these things, not because they didn't want them, but because they didn't have those opportunities. And so I think if you, but if you make it all about reentry and reintegration, you act as if everybody was fully integrated and, and and ready to go before, before they went to prison. And that it's all about prison. Well, actually that's not true. And in the, in and the, and the, and the sociologist, right? Rishon is a sociologist. He, he I mean, he knows this isn't true. I mean, he the examples he gave in his life or personal life. Or, but I mean, that's what sociology teaches us is that there's very deep structural differences and opportunity in this country. And those opportunities writ large are, are human development opportunities. They're opportunities to to become the adult that, that you might want to be. Um, and it's pretty clear that it's not as if uh, across racial groups or that the aspirations are very different um people want to have these adult roles and so um and they may define them slightly differently in different contexts but in general these are roles that, that all humans want um, they want to be self-sufficient they want to be uh, have partners they want to have families they want to be part of the communities and so i think that um i think that that's the you know that I think this framework actually makes those points more obvious, rather than less. Um, and 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 should start to ask questions about not just about prison. Um, it gets a, you know, because there's a lot of problems before the person showed up at prison, and 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 those problems don't fall on the fractional system. Those problems fall on on the processes that we created that didn't provide people with those opportunities to develop as a human. And I think you know if you're just looking at you know the experiences I grew. I have a. I live in a place that's uh, near Schenectady, where the two high schools for Schenectady versus the town next door are about three miles apart. But the opportunities presented to the two people, to the people that go to one school versus another, are worlds apart. And um, I think it makes it clear that it's not just about individuals' own achievements and 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 uh, effort, uh, and that. And I hope this discussion sort of makes that point in a way that i don't think re-entry or reintegration does
0: yeah and i want to i mean the the point of this conversation that really stood out to me and listening to all of you was around this uh issue of agency slash identity um or identity slash agency right we are our, our agency grows out of that sense of who we are um and um so i'm really curious um uh, on a, on a, on a couple different points i mean when i think about this issue and i imagine i imagine julio medina as this sweet little baby just born uh, and mom holding him in his arms she never in her million years was imagining that you know the fu- this was the future for her son that you know I'm, yeah this one's for prison we've got you know uh there was a a process by which Julio was directed toward prison. There was a, 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 a life course that, um, that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes if we could see the lives of people in prison all at once, we wouldn't ask, how did you get here? We would ask, what took you so long? Um, you know, like there's just so many things that have contributed to this and and really um, eroded or preempted or distorted this sense of identity and agency. Um, it, it created a false identity. And part of that identity was a sense that I don't have control. Then we take people and we put them in prison and we, we put that lack of agency on steroids. Uh, and then they get to the end of their sentence and they're, they're pushed back out of the system. And we're surprised that nothing has changed when, in fact, most things have been reinforced uh, in, that, in that experience. So all this is to lead up to we have this idea that people, um, that some people, many people, if um, Sean's numbers are correct, uh, we have this idea that there's a substantial number of people who are on already on a desistance pathway. And there may be others, and, and, and we're not identifying them. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of other people who may be at some point on moving toward that. We don't know who they are. So I open this to everybody on the panel to comment on how do we find uh, how do we find people who are uh, in that process and are ready to engage in a different future?
2: I mean, in in the paper, Sean did a good job of laying out a theoretical model about how we think about the highs and lows of this motivation. I mean, I, I tend to think that a lot of that motivation comes from what we see about what we see as possible. And so as Julio was saying, and I I think Brett mentioned it as well, we have to think about uh, getting certain people into prisons. Uh, I think we have to think about what that access looks like. I tend to think, (laughs) maybe not a surprise to a couple people, uh, considering that I do a lot of social science tech work, that we can really utilize virtual reality to show people what a different world looks like about what they can be, about what they can succeed to be, because oftentimes what happens, what I notice about people in impoverished communities, particularly people who've been incarcerated or or even in and out of prisons, prisons, is that um, they oftentimes can't really see what a better life might be. I mean, we know that some people's lives are so downtrodden that uh, they're trying to get a warm meal, trying to have a place to lay their head. Uh, become so normative for them for them from prison. So how do we show them a different life? And I think part of what that means is they're going oftentimes back to communities that are so marginalized, that are so downtrodden, trying to find a, a group of people who have uh, full-time jobs with benefits is something that they don't readily see. But they do see people who have money, who are engaging in other types of endeavors that oftentimes might be criminal in nature. So we have to make that shift in terms of showing them the same way that we show kids. This gets back to Sean's great point about how we have to think about entry and not re-entry. See, if we think about entry and we think that that individuals are lacking certain adult roles, and it's not to say that, that they're children. I mean, you might have a 25, 30, 40 year old. They're clearly adults, but that doesn't mean that they've had that adult socialization that we expect to have happened. So then how do we give them that? If we call it re-entry, we're suggesting that they've already had it and they're just going to be able to go back out and succeed. That's not how it happens. If we start with entry, now all of a sudden we have something different and we can start at a different point, a much earlier point in the process to give them what they need to hopefully set them up in situations where not only they say, Here are opportunities of success, I think I can do that. But also then that I think I can do that is the motivation. That we're looking for. And I think because of whether that be particularly with 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 men, with 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 males, with 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 young men, um, there is a certain masculine bravado that seems to cloud that these people are quite vulnerable, that they are quite scared, that they're quite afraid of what society is doing. And instead, oftentimes we're programmed because they're they're they're, they're returning citizens because they're, they're ex-cons. We've been trained to fear them instead of realizing that really they fear society um, and they fear society because they've never seen uh, what they think success looks like. They've never seen anyone like them, anyone from where they're from that's successful. And I and what I found is that that switch. um, I, Look, I, I be, on a personal level, I recognize it as a 40 year old at this point, over over 40 over year old at this point, that I'm not as relatable to an 18 year old who who might be involved with the criminal justice system as I was 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But I do know several people who are. And so part of that becomes how we structure people's opportunities in and outside of prison. And Ashan is saying, Take away some of those longer sent- some of those longer probation sentences, but start much earlier in prison about not necessarily rehabilitation, but entry. And I think that theoretical shift changes how we think about approaching people who are incarcerated.
0: So I'm curious uh, for Brett. Yeah, I'm glad you turned your uh, your your mic on. Uh, what does it look like from an administrator standpoint in terms of trying to figure out? Um, uh you know who might be approaching um a decision point like Julio experienced you know like there, there's some process going on inside them uh that it's hard you can't observe it there's no x-ray here to look inside and tell what's going on so what do you what do you think of that question what what can corrections do better or differently in that
3: yeah hey, I, I think we're doing it wrong I think we are trying to do it how you're describing, which is trying to get inside people's heads. Basically, uh, the prevalent, um, framework within corrections is called the risk needs responsivity model. Sean knows it. I know, um, to me, it's problematic because it's trying to figure out what's in people's heads rather than looking at their actual behavior. And as I referred to in my comments, I think you should believe people when they show you their behavior. Uh, And so whether you have behavioral benchmarks of you're clean for X period of time, and then we can reduce supervision or take off some form of whatever, uh, I I think, you know, focusing on actual behavioral benchmarks is much more useful than trying to figure out where people are inside. Uh, I also think that um, the signaling approach is valuable, although I would say, and maybe Sean can... um, talk more about what makes a good signal, because I'm not remembering all of um, the components of what makes a good signal. But I do remember the one thing that Sean mentioned that makes a good signal is that it is voluntary. And um, so when we look at participation in, say, in prison programming as a signal for someone who has desisted, the problem is technically in Pennsylvania, all of our programs are technically voluntary but the parole board is not going to parole you unless you take it. So is it really voluntary when someone knows that they're not going to get paroled if they don't take this program? Um, So even though it's technically voluntary, um, it's strictly required by the parole board in in order to get a positive paroling action. So I see that as problematic for, uh, I'd be curious to hear Sean's response on that um, from a signaling standpoint, but I, I do think there's value in this signaling approach uh
0: so I want to give I want before Sean jumps in and gives a response there I did want to hear Julio on this question as well um, when you're when you're working with uh, men and women in the New York system uh, uh, what are you looking for in terms of uh, capacity uh, people who might make uh, good participants for exodus's program? Um, I know that you're not trying to exclude anyone, but what do you think makes for a successful participant?
4: Um, I, and, and let me just I, I briefly just comment. And I think it was uh, Rashawn or someone who said something because we had Brent a participant when we were talking about agency. Somebody who came through our doors and he went through our workshops, and now he's with our job developers, and the job developer you know finds him a job, and he comes back. And he's like, yo, man, and he's not excited. He's more like shocked. And he says, you know, um, this, this, this nine, you know, I, yeah, I got a job, but it's crazy. It's, it's five days a week, nine to five, and the shock of that for him, you know, and and so he never saw anyone in his immediate circle going to work, right? He, he, he it just says so much about that. He did not know. That was the parameters of a full-time job um uh, so just it, it just rang so 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 true when I heard some of the comments that were being made um For us, as you know, Brent, we take everybody who walks through our doors. I think one of the things that we look for is we have something called yeah you know, we'll, we'll get a better name for it's kind of this track two should be track one. but basically what we see is long termers so we have a lot of long termers who come through our doors and with our, and I'm talking about you know 37 years I got I got someone on staff who's done 37 years. Um, and, and we are his first job. Um, so for us, it's, it's understanding and the staff understanding and the team understanding when we look looking our participants, you know, from 17 years old to over the, for the next 37 years, <laughs> he knows prison. This is what he's done and in there and that, and then how he did his bid, right? You know, did he go to school? Did he do anything? Did he stay in the yard? You know, um. So we look at all those things. You know, I get, actually I get referrals from people inside still. Hey, somebody's getting out. Um, check this person out. They went to school. They did some college. They might be good at in this role. So for us, our, our doors are, are pretty wide open. Uh, because again, we know the lights can come on during one of the workshops. We know that, that they can look at one of our staff people who are credible messengers who, and they see them now in a suit. And they're like, wait a minute, I was in the yard with you. We were in the, you know, an SHU in a box together. And now you're in a suit and I'm looking at that and the lights come on for of this person. And now they want to figure out, hey, what's, what's what's the formula here? What's happening here? So we've created a cadre of, of people that kind of model what success looks like for others. And again, this is, you know, we, we trip over ourselves all the time. Don't get me wrong. But it's been working thus far. I think that that model has been working thus far in some of the work that we're doing.
0: Terrific. Okay, Sean, uh, do you want to come back on any of that?
1: I mean, I think I am always struck when we have these conversations that, you know, that the focus immediately becomes not about prison, but the situations before prison. Um, and then, and, and that speaks to the question that I raised that this is a human development issue. And it would, would do a lot better to place this in this uh, perspective of what are we doing to help people achieve these goals that they want? And if, you know, it's a very different situation if you've never had that. I had a father who talked about work all the time. I knew what it was. I knew what the experience was. What if you didn't have that, right? And so, I mean, I think that this this is, it's easy to understand that that that's going to be harder to get to that goal if you don't even know it's there, even if you may want to, right? So you don't know what it is. And so I think that that's, you know that's not about prison though right so mm-hmm. i think it focuses on the, in the but it does say if that's the problem then what are we doing in the prison to fix the problem and i think that's what brett is talking about and in terms of the incentives i i don't personally have a lot of problem if they have incentives to participate in the programs um uh, provided it's not mandated <laughs> um because things can happen when you're going through a process, even if you're doing it for not 100% the right reasons. Um, I I think you can have mixed motives. And I think there's some, you know, having an incentive to do it. um, I believe in learning. I believe in the, the light bulbs going off. I'm always struck by every time you talk to someone like, um uh in in the situation, um you know someone like Julio who's talked that they, they use this language of light bulbs going off, and if you go back and you look at the theory that Ray Patterson and I came up with, we talk about this this process by which you realize, oh shoot, I can do I don't want to do this anymore, I can do something else. Well, how does light bulbs go off? well, you're in an environment where you're learning something and 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 so sometimes it's the programming itself that gets the light bulb to go off. Um, And so I think that's, that's what I'm okay with that. Um, And, and I know in fact, Brett, that not everybody who, is in your prison system actually participates in programming, even though they have an incentive to do so. So as long as it's not everybody, because it's not, I mean, I I think that, you know, there is a situation where um, it's okay. Um, And we know that when you take away that incentive, fewer people didn't participate in this program and and recidivism rates go down, go up. So I think that, I think it's, it's part of the process and incentives are are okay. um, uh, Provided they're not mandated. And, And I think, you know, what do you do with children, right? I mean, it's the same kinds of things, not just little kids, older kids. Well, okay, what's going to happen if you do this? Well, that's going to be a good thing, right? And how do you achieve your own goals? Well, you give yourself rewards. Is that is that coercive? Yeah, a little bit, but not completely, right? Because in the end, you have to do the work and you have to go through the process. And I think... I think that's the part that I think would, is, is okay within the context of the prison systems. But I do think that thinking about signals is an idea that I've put out there since 2012, and it still hasn't been fully understood what that means. And I'm tr- truly troubled by the degree to which these these numbers that people use about recidivism are just simply not the right numbers for the problem we're talking about when we're talking about reentry, and yet they get used over and over and over again by policymakers. And academics to frame the conversation. You know, Brett says, "If my number's right, my number is right." Like, if you <laughs> if you want to focus on the people, everyone who went to prison, how many of them come back? The answer is not fifty three percent or sixty percent. The answer is thirty three percent. I mean, that's the answer. I mean, it's it's it. You know, it, because it's a different question um, than the one that says, "Gee." Who gets released today? Because that population of people that gets released today is overpopulated with people that fail a lot. And yes, that's important from Brett's perspective. You know, you have to understand what the situation is going to be for the people that are being released. But that's not who we're talking about when we talk about reentry. We're talking about everyone who's ever had this experience, and and a lot of those people succeed. Um, And so, yes, there's going to be people that fail a lot, but we don't want to focus too much on them when we're talking about the general question of whether people do succeed after prison.
0: So, has uh, Sean, has anybody ever studied the uh, this thirty three sixty six split that you're talking about? What what do we know about the sixty six percent who leave and don't come back? I mean, first of all, you, you can't
1: necessarily predict who they're going to be. They're not all the low-risk guys. Um, we find that even, and Brett's numbers show this too. I mean, even some people that you identify as being high-risk, i.e., they they had a pretty pretty active record before, come out the other end and don't come back. Um, so, you know, those rates at which that is true is is you know obviously the lower rate people are more likely not to come back. Obviously, um, but it's it's it's. It's it's very interesting how hard it is to predict who those people are going to be. And that's because it's not simply a question of your initial deficits. It's a question of when you have these light bulb moments and start to move towards a different thing. And the frustrating part for everyone in the field is, well, what makes that happen? Well, the reality is, think about what made you decide to be the person you are. It ha- it's different for everyone, right? You know, for me, I right. I, I want,
0: but it, 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 there's a consistency across the stories, uh, even today. There's always a person who yeah. is at the crux of that moment um, where you choose something different. But the thing that gets Julio
1: excited was community engagement, community, being a community organizer, because
0: that it was it hit. But it was different for the everyone. Person, the voice of the instructor in the class. Right. Saying you're a community organizer. Yeah. So the the relationship is the important part. But then it's also it's
1: not like you went if you said, okay let's here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into every classroom and going to tell every single person (laughs) you should be a community organizer. That doesn't work. Right. Because the thing that made Julio go is not what made someone else go. Right. Right. And so. Everybody's going to be motivated differently. And that's really hard because now how do you well, – stop trying to be prescriptive. I, he, it, Brett talked about this R&R model. I don't think the R&R model makes a lot of sense. It doesn't match any model of the I've seen. I think this good may, uh, you know, the good life model that's in Europe makes some sense. And I'd like to see more thought about how that fits within the American context. Um, because it, it's a human development model. It's a question of what it is that you're trying to be. Um, but. it's a fundamental choice. The thing that makes you tick is going to be different for different people. And what you got to do is find that thing that makes you tick. And it, the light bulb goes off for different people in different readings. But I'm 100% convinced it's about a light bulb.
0: So the, um, the, the, the thing is, it's not you. It's not the you're a community organizer. It's it starts with a question, actually, of who are you? Right. Um, and and then people struggling with the answer to that question and then somebody's saying, well, when I listen to you talk about who you, what you think about, what you care about, you sound like a community organizer to me. You know, not, oh, yeah, you're, we'll put you in the community organizing class now. It's, but, it, it's much more of a dialogical process. But what's really striking to me is you listen to Julio talk, and he talks about
1: his light bulb moment. I suspect that most people listening to this talk could have a, could give a similar story about a light bulb moment where they decided to do a certain thing that was different than what they did before, whether or not they went to prison. In other words, this is a, this is fundamental part of right. being a human. Yeah. And so we need to stop thinking about people that went to prison as if they're somehow different. They're on the same process as everyone else, because they are like everybody else. And this experience of, of, of development, identity achievement, and I didn't make this up. This is a well-established set of principles that 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 psychologists are well aware of, and we all transition through these set stages where we're processing this this kind of churning that you were talking about, um, and it's the same process for for everyone. Um, uh-huh. And I think that's I think that's the part that's hard for for prescribers because you want to say, well, okay. What am I going to do for everyone? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do for everyone because the answer is going to be different. The thing that turns your clock is going to be different for everyone. But you need to be engaged in that process where you're asking that question, where you're building the relationships and then where you're allowing people to pursue that.
0: Yeah. Okay, we are almost out of time. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get to any of the Or we are out of time. Actually, Uh, we're going to get to the audience questions. We'll, We'll try to handle those in writing. So stay tuned uh to our webpage and we'll try to get answers or reflections from the panelists on uh those questions but I wanted to give both Brett and Julio a minute to wrap up on any thoughts that they've got that they haven't had a chance to express or something that Sean or I said um that they want to respond to or clarify. So we'll start with yeah, we'll start with you Julio. Julio
4: oh so just just again grateful thank you for the opportunity i think you know we we were we are on target uh love the research So i want to start just implementing some of this as well in in our organizations um and you know maybe this outside factor that that i don't know we haven't discussed but i just want to throw in there how uh, the name of my organization is Exodus. so of course you know i got to talk about faith and i'm not you know as we think about does that move the barometer with someone getting out when we know 80% of folk, uh, you know, who go in, uh, those who convert, usually convert to Islam, you know, um, there's just a, another conversation that, that I hope we look at as well. When does that play a role in in that aha moment? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, I haven't talked about that, but, but it was that that rekindled my right. sense of purpose uh, going to the chapel. So
0: I just want to throw, yeah. that, throw that out there. Thank you. It's a great point. Thank you, Julio. Brett?
3: Yeah, I just want to reiterate a point. The last point that Sean made, which really struck me, too, which is that people involved in the criminal justice system act under the same principles that everyone else as human beings act on. That really struck me. And that's not something that I mentioned before, but that really struck me in Sean's paper, too. And I really fundamentally believe um, I think if you flip the question and you go back to you know some Theories in crime ask not why did some people get into crime, but why doesn't everyone get into crime? So it flips the question, and I, Julio will appreciate this. I mean, you you could say from a spiritual religious standpoint, but for the grace of God, they're alive. And so I think yes, people in the criminal justice system are just like in some a lot of aspects just like everyone else. They're human beings and they need to be treated like human beings and individuals, um, not like projects or um, quick um, problems to solve um, and just getting them into the right program at the right time, in the right place, but really just treating them under the fundamental principles that we treat all human beings. So I just, that's the last point I, I wanted to um, say, but again, thanks, uh, John and great paper
0: right thanks so much that's a great word for us to that's a great word for us to end on um when we think about people in prison we have to think about them as people not as prisoners not as inmates but as people who share many of our if not all of our hopes and aspirations and developmental processes and uh that uh, we can have we can have more success, I think, um, in uh, in trying to help that one third who are the frequent flyers who drive a lot of so many of the stats that get misused in this conversation. Helping those uh, those who might return to prison um, uh, find a new identity and a new path in life. So I want to thank um, Sean for the great work on the paper. Uh, it's been so. Fruitful, thought provoking for me, uh, and helped me to think just a lot more clearly about uh, the issues that we're dealing with. Appreciate uh, Julio and Brett uh, and sharing their um, expertise, their life experience on this topic. Uh, Rashawn Ray had to drop off to go, um, I think, proctor the last exam or something. Uh, for his uh, his students, so uh, but thanks to him too for his great partnership on um, this incredibly important topic. Uh, for our audience, uh, we will, as I said, be posting um, uh, responses to the question, the written questions that you submitted, and um, just stay tuned to AEI um, for more programming like this on the topic of criminal justice reform and reentry and um, broadly speaking, the topic of hope. So uh, I uh, wish you all a very happy holiday season and thank you again for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orrell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.